very happy to be with you today. Thank you for uh, your prayers. Uh, I would recommend not getting uh, the deli buffalo dip from Walmart. Uh, <laughs> and I'll leave it at that for you. <laughs> uh, well, uh, today, uh, just want to uh, start off, and I just want you to uh, just kind of get a picture in your mind. So, uh, April 6, 1453, I want you to picture yourself as a Greek soldier in the city of Constantinople. Uh, you're there and you're uh, manning uh, the wall, the great Theodosian wall around the city. And uh, it just so happens uh, on that day that the city is surrounded by the Ottoman forces under Sultan Mehmed II. Uh, and let's say you're, you're standing there and, you know, someone comes up to you and tells you kind of what you're facing, what's going on. So uh, you, as one of the defenders of the city, there's about 7,000 of you. Um, so it seems like a, a good number. Um, and, of course, you have these great big walls, so that's very helpful for you. Uh, however, on the opposing side of the Ottomans, uh, they have about 100,000, 130,000 troops. Uh, they also have uh, 1,500 cavalry, and about half of their troops are elite warriors known as the Janissaries, who were uh, slaves who from uh, childhood were trained in warfare. Uh, some of the great warriors of the uh, Middle Ages and uh, moving on. And uh, even more than that, uh, the uh, Ottomans also have uh, cannons, uh, gunpowder cannons that are capable of breaching the wall. So one of the, the first real uh, uses of these cannons, uh, and you know already that those are going to break through that wall. So again, you're just uh, one of these Greek soldiers. You're uh, outnumbered 10 to 1, um, and your best defense, this wall, uh, really isn't going to be much of a defense uh, for you. So I want to ask, as you're, you're standing there, uh, as you're this, this Greek soldier, how bad of news is that if I've just told you the odds, if I've told you what you're facing? How, how bad uh, of news is that for you? Um, pretty bad, I would imagine, uh, because you know also if they breach the walls, you're probably going to be killed or enslaved. So keep that image in your mind, um, just how you would feel hearing all this, because I do want to share with you today that I actually have worse news for you. <laughs> and that news itself uh, isn't just a, a historical hypothetical, it's an objective reality today. Um, news that's worse than if you were facing the Ottomans and they had a million troops and a hundred cannons. And that news is the harsh reality that all human beings in their natural state apart from God are under the power of sin. And because of that, they are under the judgment of God, which is ultimately far worse than any siege, far worse than any opposing army. And so in scripture today in our passage, Romans 3, 1 through 20, I want to share with you Unfortunately, this bad news, 
this really horrible news of what we're facing, so that in light of this bad news, in full cognizance of what we're dealing with, we can turn towards a hope that is far greater, far stronger, and far uh, more effective than this bad news that I'm sharing with you today. So if you would turn with me to Romans 3, 1 through 20. And I'll just pray for us as you're turning. Lord, just thank you again uh, just for opportunity to share your word, Lord. And um, Lord, your word is honest and it's true and it doesn't shield us from the harsh realities of of our existence. And Lord, I pray that that uh, would uh, strike true today, Lord. I pray that even though this is not a comfortable, not a pleasant truth, that we would still hear it and accept it as your truth, Lord. And so, Lord, just pray, be with us today, be with me as I preach, and uh, pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all this. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans 3, 1 through 20. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness serves serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." Now then, uh, just having read this passage, uh, just want to give a little background. It's been a little bit of time since we've been in this part of Romans. So uh, just to give context what Paul is talking about here. So uh, in the preceding verses, preceding sections, Paul has been laying out a case. uh, First, that the Gentile world, so everyone who's a non-Jew, 
is sinful and under the judgment of God. He proceeds then to uh, speak about the Jews who may feel perhaps uh, because they're God's chosen people that they are also exempt from this. But he then goes on to show that in fact, uh, a lot of them are hypocrites because they practice the same sins as the Gentile world, even though they know better. And so here, having laid out that Gentiles are sinful, uh, the Jews are sinful as well, um, Paul's going to start answering uh, kind of a couple rhetorical questions that he poses, which um, his Jewish readers um, or opponents may uh, bring up as a result of what he says. So that's kind of uh, what he's saying. It doesn't fit perfectly neatly into any uh, sort of sermon pattern, but I just want to go through uh, the different questions that he asks and why he answers them in the manner that he does. So the first thing he starts off is asking what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Basically saying, well, if all Jews are sinful, just like the Gentiles, then you know, is, is there any advantage that Jews have? I mean, they're supposed to be the chosen people of God. Surely uh, you can't just put them equal side to side to the Gentiles. There has to be some difference. And so Paul uh, does say, uh, of course, there is uh, an advantage. And here in the ESV, he says to begin with. Um, but the actual Greek phrase, it's proton men, um, literally first with, um, can also mean just an item of first importance. So not necessarily the start of a sequence. Uh, which kind of makes sense because Paul starts with a sequence and then immediately stops listing things. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, if uh, your friend asks you, like, you know, list some of my good qualities, and you start, oh, you know, your, uh, you know, your voice is very nice. <laughs> A little awkward. <laughs> Brings up other questions, but no, here uh, Paul is. Uh, not necessarily starting a sequence, but just listing the most important item uh, as an advantage. And what exactly is this uh, item of first importance, if you will? Um, it's that the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. So oracles of God is uh, just Paul's way, essentially, of referencing the whole of the Old Testament. So the law and the prophets, um, all of the... Uh, inspired word that God had spoken to Israel over the preceding centuries. Um, and the reason why this is of first importance is because it is God who has spoken to them. God has chosen out of all the nations of the world to speak to the nation of Israel. Uh, he's not speaking to, to everyone in the past. He's speaking to this one nation. And we even see how uh, Israel reacts to this. Um, and its significance here in Deuteronomy uh, 4, 7 through 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So they acknowledged and they understood how special this is. God is speaking to them. He has provided them with his very word. So in a real sense, that certainly is an advantage. Um, if God is the ultimate judge of the world, if God is the, uh, the end-all, be-all, then having him speak to you is pretty significant. 
Now with that, Paul seemingly transitions, perhaps a little jarringly uh, for us, into asking a question. Um, And the logic itself maybe doesn't jump off the page, uh, but he asks uh, in a rhetorical sense, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So the logical connection between the oracles of God and this question is uh, he is he's asking rhetorical questions from the perspective of his opponents or someone who would have questions about what he's saying, uh, someone of uh, Jewish origin. And that person, and Paul knows, you know, the Jews have received the oracles of God, they've received his law, but we know that... Uh, Israel has not been faithful to that. Um, they've made a covenant with God. They, have, uh, they are supposed to obey his laws, um, and they haven't done that. Most of the Old Testament is testifying to that fact that Israel has not obeyed the Lord, and that continues even into Paul's day. So this question then is uh, essentially, so if the Jews then have not followed God's law, so we haven't held up our end of the bargain. Does that mean that God is now just going to renege on all that and say, nope, uh, done with you guys. Uh, you didn't do your part, so I'm not doing my part. The promises, uh, all the blessings, all these things, um, you know, I'm, just, I'm just done with you. So that's the question that's being asked. But Paul responds, uh, absolutely not. So a very emphatic uh, You know, no, not at all, uh, is what he's saying. And uh, he sort of adds to that, you know, let God be true, though everyone is a liar. Basically saying, you know, God is absolutely uh, true in what he says, uh, even if that would mean everybody else is a liar. Um, And then says, uh, he quotes Psalm 51, 4, that you may be judged in your words and prevail or excuse me, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So all in all, what he's saying, just to break that all down, is absolutely not. The faithlessness of some of Israel does not in any way nullify God's faithfulness. So maybe you have seen, uh, you know, any type of soap opera or or drama where uh, one party in a relationship cheats, And so, kind of out of spite, the other party decides to cheat, and then, you know, a huge mess ensues. Um, That's not the case with Israel and God. Israel has cheated. Israel has been faithless. But even so, God is going to remain faithful. He is not going to go back on anything he said. He's not going to go back on anything. So, in no way does the faithlessness of Israel nullify God's faithfulness to his word. That stands absolute and resolute. And so this is the first question, sort of objection, rhetorical question, that Paul answers. But then he moves on and asks another question. But if our unrighteousness serves serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So based on uh, this response, that uh, God remains faithful when Israel is faithless, this objector is sort of thinking, well, 
you know, the faithlessness of Israel, if you really think about it, is just putting God's faithfulness in kind of bold relief. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a bank robbery, or not a bank rob, well, it would be a robbery of a bank, but not in the way you might be thinking. Uh, <laughs> let's say the vault just opens in the bank, and so all sorts of t uh, people just run in, and they start grabbing all the money, and they start stealing it. And there's one guy just by the door, and he doesn't steal any of the money. You know, there's, there's literally money just lying at his feet. He doesn't touch any of it. He doesn't do anything. The fact that everybody has been stealing the money, people have been running in, grabbing it, just shows in such a sharp contrast how honest that guy is, that everybody around him has been thieving, has been doing all these bad things, but that guy has been righteous, he's done nothing wrong. It, it serves to illustrate and underscore just how impressive that is. And so the logic there of this, this question is, well, isn't that kind of what Israel does with God? They sin and they sin and they're unfaithful. And the fact that God remains faithful, this just really serves to underscore that. We're actually making God look really good by doing this. And if making God really look really good is a good thing, we're kind of doing a good thing then. So why is God judging us? You know, it's, the logic it makes sense, it checks out, but the conclusion is a little off, it's a little uncomfortable. And so Paul responds to that and he says, you know, by, by no means, uh, for then how could God judge the world? If, if God is... You know, it's not unrighteous for God to judge you, even if your sin puts his goodness in right relief, or in, in uh, broad relief, because you're still sinning, you're still doing wrong. Um, you know, he is not letting you off the hook just because that is an effect of your sin. Because if God were going to do that, then he has no business judging the world. But we know, as an a priori fact, that God is the judge of the world, so we know he has to be righteous. So that is how Paul responds. But to his objector, he takes that one step further. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So basically saying the same thing. But then he goes on to say in verse 8, well, why not do evil that good may come? So really, taking that logic uh, taking his argument, you know, again, we're, we're making God look really good. So if we want to do that, we should actually do a lot of bad things because it's going to make him look really, really good. I should run into that bank and just come out with handfuls of money because this guy over here is not taking any of it. It's going to look so honest. He's going to look so nice. He's going to look so good. Then we should, we should do that, shouldn't we? And Paul notes as well with that, uh, that some people had accused Paul of saying that very thing, um, that we should do good, that, or excuse me, that we should do evil, that good may result. Um, basically, uh, saying that Paul is preaching lawlessness, that we shouldn't do any, any good, or excuse me, we should just be doing evil. Um, and in response to that, this somewhat uh, charged question, Paul doesn't actually respond he simply says that for those who are slandering him and saying this, that their condemnation is just for accusing him of saying this. 
And why does he just kind of leave it off there? Well, I think the reason why he leaves it off there is it is just such a ridiculous assertion to say, let's, let's do evil things that, that good results. You know, just saying that if we just divorce it from this context, you know, if I were to go up to you and be like, you know what, you guys should just start beating each other up. Because the one person who doesn't beat anybody else up is going to look really good and righteous for not doing so. He's going to look like he's calm and collected and, you know, doing all this. All of you would look at me like I was crazy and hopefully not beat me up after that. So he doesn't need to answer it. It's, It's like saying, you know, conspiracy theories like the moon landing was faked or, I don't know, Bill Gates is putting chips into vaccines. You know, it's something so insane you don't actually need to respond to it. And so Paul does not. He simply leaves it as it is. And so the purpose then, so now that he's answered this uh, rhetorical question, again, he's basically just going through the gamut of potential objections that Jews may have to saying that they are sinful as the Gentiles are. So again, it doesn't fit neatly and tidy necessarily into um, in alliteration or some uh, major point, but that is just the reality of what Paul's doing. He's just kind of brushing aside some objections so that he can get to his main point, uh, which is coming up. With that being said, I would say uh, certainly something that we can uh, take away from that, um, even though these may not be the objections we have or the questions that we're asking, um, is one thing that Paul makes very clear is that God remains faithful even in the face of human unfaithfulness. And so we, as we struggle through our Christian life, God is not going to change based on who we are or what we do. He is going to remain consistent. He is going to remain faithful to his word. Though, bearing in mind, his word also includes fatherly displeasure and discipline. So we need to keep that in mind as well. But be assured that God remains faithful in all of this. So then moving into the next section, which is really where Paul has wanted to get. This is, he's uh, dealt with most of these questions, and so now he wants to dive in to his main point. And so he has one last question to uh, answer which is the same question at the beginning. What then? Are we Jews any better at off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So Paul is answering essentially the same question as he did in verse 1. You know, is there any advantage or are the Jews better off? And now it seems like he's changing his answer. You know, first he starts off, well, of course there's the advantage of having God's word, but now as he's coming to his main point, he says, really, there, there isn't an advantage. You're not better off. And the reason why he says that is he's now approaching this question from the reality of the universality of human sin, that even though the Jews have the oracles of God, even though they have the promises and the covenant, that doesn't help them ultimately with the human condition of sin, 
that Jews and Greeks are both under the power of sin, that the law of God does not exempt them from that. Knowledge of God does not exempt them from that. And so looking at humanity through the eyes of sin, there is no advantage to being Jewish. There's no disadvantage to being uh, a Gentile. Everyone is equal in this unfortunate reality. And so Paul now goes on to really drive that point home. And so he is going to quote a number of passages from the Old Testament to really underscore what he's saying. And so I think I have a slide here uh, just showing the different uh, places that he is quoting. This is from a New Testament scholar, C.K. Barrett. Um, I don't know if you can fully read that, but it's basically a bunch of quotes, primarily from the Psalms, a little bit of Isaiah. Um, and it's this first uh, verse that he quotes um, coming from uh, the Psalms that's really the summary statement of what he's going to go on to say, is that none is righteous, no, not one. There is not a single person living or dead, who is ultimately righteous in a spiritual sense vis-a-vis -vis God. But he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, you know, no one's righteous and leave it at that. He adds content to what that means. He says that they've all, uh, no one understands, no one seeks God. No one is, is looking for God. No one is going after God. Um, all have turned aside, they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Um, that by turning aside from God, so not only is it that people aren't looking for God, they're going in the opposite direction. And by doing so, by cutting themselves off from the ultimate uh, validation of their, their value or source of their being, they're worthless. They become worthless. They become nothing. And he goes on and he, he just keeps layering onto this uh, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. These people are liars. Um, they uh, deceive each other. The venom of asps is under their lips. Death comes from their words. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. There's nothing good coming from it. And their feet are swift to shed blood. Uh, murder and violence comes from these people. And in their past are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, that their whole direction is going towards a bad place where there's only misery. And ultimately, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There is no re uh, reverence of God. There's no respect for him. There's no love for him. And so what's interesting about all of this, other than how much in your face this is, is the majority of these quotes from the Psalms are coming from David's Psalms in which David as the righteous king is describing his enemies, uh, the people who've sought to kill him, the people who've sought to do him harm. So these are the, the bad guys of the story. These are the villains. And yet that is being applied to everybody Paul is talking about in fact, it's even being applied to Paul himself because in verse 9, he switches from talking about Jews in the abstract to saying, are we Jews any better off? 
are we, inclusive of me, any better off? Not at all. I am a person who, uh, whose throat is an open grave. My feet are swift to shed blood. My path is going towards ruin and misery. And you might say to yourself, well, you know, Paul, that seems a little bit much, you know. My grandma is a very nice person. I haven't seen her, you know, try to murder anyone at any point. Um, you know, I don't see her deceiving people all the time. You know, are you being a little hyperbolic? Or are you kind of exaggerating to make your point? And in response to that, Paul would say no. This is an exaggeration. This is the reality of the human condition, that there is no human who is ultimately good. And I think if we examine ourselves, uh, you know, Pastor Paul likes to use the analogy of if we were to get some machine that would project all your thoughts onto the projector, you know, no one would really want to be in church that day. No one would want that machine used on them. And that's absolutely true. If we're really honest with ourselves, we can list all sorts of, you know, good things we've done. You know, I gave to charity, I did this. But you put us in a, a bad situation or, or a certain situation and tempers flare, pride comes out, uh, lusts are activated, all sorts of things. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a, a theologian in the uh, 20th century, said, Sin is the only empirically uh, validated truth of the Christian religion. That it's the one thing you don't have, have to have any faith to see uh, is being true. You know, if you turn on the news, you can see human sin everywhere, absolutely everywhere. The fact that we haven't just bombed ourselves into oblivion already is a grace of God. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, I like to watch some of those kind of post-apocalyptic shows, you know, uh, zombies flying around and all sorts of stuff like that. And I'm always struck by the fact that, you know, the character that you think is really good in the beginning, give them a few seasons of having to struggle for survival, and all of a sudden, their character changes quite dramatically, they start lying, they start stealing, they start killing, they start making all sorts of moral compromises. And I don't think it's that their character changed, that they started off as good, and then through a few decisions or circumstances they became bad. I think the circumstances themselves merely revealed what was already there, that this capacity, this drive towards evil was present in them to begin with, and circumstances merely allowed that to be present. And so maybe as you hear this, you are thinking, well, you know, certainly there are some, you know, bad characters out there, but what about me? I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I pay my taxes, you know, I do all sorts of civic things. You know, if anything, I'm, I'm the hero of my own story. You know, I'm, I'm kind of the righteous person going out and doing the right thing. All right, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, I think a great uh, kind of way to look at that is, uh, has anyone seen the Christopher Nolan film, Memento? Anybody? All right. <laughs> it's a really good movie. 
I'm about to ruin it for you, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so the movie opens up with a man being shot and killed, um, and then immediately transitions to uh, black and white and this man waking up in a motel room. And you find out, he answers the phone, uh, that this, this guy who wakes up, his name is Leonard, and he has uh, amnesia. He can't form any short-term memory. Uh, and so he has to put notes all over himself. He tattoos himself with things as reminders. You know, after about a couple hours, he's going to forget everything. Um, but he tells this man on the phone that, you know, his, his mission in life is his wife was assaulted and murdered. And so he's trying to find out the person that killed his wife, which of course is very difficult because he has amnesia, and so he's trying to, to piece together everything. And then he also talks uh, about the story of uh, another individual who had a similar condition um, named Sammy, who, uh, you know, he had uh, amnesia and his wife was a diabetic and he accidentally overdosed her insulin and killed her. Um, and so he kind of uses that as an example, you know, Sammy uh, did this, and Sammy, you know, uh, he just kind of let his life go, but I'm really trying to master this condition so that I can find my wife's uh, killer. Uh, and the man he's talking to on the phone is a guy named Teddy, who's helping him track down his killer. And so the story progresses, and it's, it's very confusing because half the movie goes forward in time, the other half goes backward in time. So you're trying to piece together the chronology and it's not really clear what's going on. But as you finally get to the movie where past and present meet, you find out that the guy killed in the beginning of the movie is uh, that guy, Teddy, who is helping Leonard find uh, whoever killed his wife. And you find out that this story that Leonard keeps telling about this Sammy who overdosed his wife on insulin that's actually Leonard himself. He's the person who killed his wife. And because he couldn't deal with that fact, he has constructed this narrative for himself where he's constantly going out to find his wife's killer and ultimately killing those people. And so in the movie, we see he kills two people who had nothing to do with his wife. And in fact, he intentionally set up this guy, Teddy, he put all sorts of clues so that his future self, having amnesia, would kill Teddy. He made it look like he was the one who killed his wife. So Leonard, he thinks he's the hero. He thinks he is the one who's on this righteous quest to avenge his wife. But what you really find out is that he's the one who's killed his wife. And now he has set up his whole reality to justify himself, his whole reality, to put himself on this righteous quest. And as a result of that, tons of people die. We don't know how many times he's done this, how many people he's killed before the movie starts, how many people are going to die after the movie starts. But ultimately, we find out that the supposed protagonist, the hero of the story, has been the villain the whole time. And I submit to you that that is the case with all of us. If you are here and you're still thinking, you know, this all seems kind of crazy, like people aren't that bad. 
I really ask you to examine yourself. I really ask you to look hard. Are you really the hero of the story? Are you really the person on the righteous quest trying to live a good life? Or are you deceiving yourself? Under the surface, is there bitterness and cursing? Is there lying? Is there rage? Is there lust? All of these things, and I think if you're honest, you're going to say, absolutely. That is absolutely who I am. That is absolutely who everyone is. And I'm saying that to you not as a man coming from on high. This is me. This is Brendan. This is who I am fundamentally apart from God, that I would lie, that I would deceive, that in the right circumstances shed blood, that going my own way, there is only misery in my path, and that without God dragging me to him, I'm not going to look for him. I'm not going to go towards him. I'm going to go my own way. And so that is what Paul wants us to know, is that this is us. We are under the power of sin. And so finally, as he draws this passage to a close, he brings up the question of, you know, what, what then? What then if, you know, we have this moral law of God, does that offer us any hope? You know, our society essentially believes if there's any sort of spiritual element to it, that if you're a good person, you know, if there's some type of afterlife or something, then you're, you're pretty much set. You just have to be a relatively good person. You know, that relative is usually based off of Hitler. So long as I'm not Hitler, I'm fine. You know, going for the lowest possible comparison. Um, but Paul kind of brings up, well, is that actually the case? If, if we obey the law, does that mean that we're, we're okay? Are we justified? Are we uh, declared a good guy in God's eyes? And so he says in verse 19, Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So what he's saying here is that the law itself... Um, Everyone's under the law, so this isn't just the Mosaic law for Jews, but the moral law for human beings. That everybody is under this law, and because of that, no one can kind of claim exemption. You know, no one is exempt from the law to do good, the law to love God and your neighbor. And so maybe you're thinking, well, you know, again, if I'm a good enough person, I'll be all set. Paul is going to shatter that illusion in verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, the law is a binary. You are either a law breaker or a law not breaker. If you break just one of God's laws, you are by definition, a lawbreaker. You are on the wrong side of that. And every single one of us has done that. And our very nature is tainted in such a way that we are absolutely going to do that, uh, that we are absolutely going to break the law. So if there's just this binary, you either obey the law perfectly or you don't, 
well, every single one of us is on the you don't side. Every single one of us has broken the law. And so none of us can be declared a good enough guy. We can't be declared moral enough to earn God's favor because every single one of us has already failed the test. Every single one of us has failed. And so there's no hope for the law. And in fact, the only thing the law does for us at this stage is it makes us aware of that fact. Um, The reformers back in the 16th century said that the law was sort of like a mirror, that it shows you where you actually are in relation to God's righteousness, that it shows you how bad you've basically done it. And so I like to think of it, I've picked up a hobby of, of painting little miniatures. Uh, I am an adult, uh, but <laughs> it's fun. Uh, and the way that I paint them is I have a picture of what it's supposed to look like so that I can compare what I'm doing to it. And at this stage, it's pretty disheartening because what I paint looks nothing like <laughs> what the picture does. There's too much paint here, not enough here, completely wrong color everywhere. Um, And so all that image is doing, all that that template or law is doing is showing me how messed up my little guy is. And in the same way the law of God is doing that for us, it's showing us how messed up we are, how far short we have fallen. And so ultimately we can't be justified by the law. We can't... uh, claim that we're good enough because if we let the law do its purpose and show us what we actually look like, we look terrible. Uh, There is no salvation for us there. And so as I draw this to a close, uh, went a little over my apologies, um, and as the band comes up, I want to reiterate just how bad our situation is, that apart from God, every single one of us is under the judgment of God, that every single one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, is under the power of evil and sin, and that inside of us, every one of us ultimately is bent towards evil. But I can't simply leave us there and have us all go home simply with that bad news. Because ultimately the purpose of giving this bad news isn't so that we would wallow in despair, but that so we would turn towards the good news, turn towards the hope that God has laid out for us. And that's what Paul says in the next few verses, uh, 21 and 20 to 25 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Without going into all of that, which uh, Pastor Paul or Toby will Uh, do in the coming weeks. Um, If you realize that you are a sinner, if you accept the truth of what Paul is saying, and you are sitting there wondering, what do I do? This is what I would absolutely implore you, that I would beg you to consider, 
is that escape and rescue is made available for you. All you need to do is simply admit the truth of your condition, that you are in a really sorry state, that this news couldn't be any worse, that you are sinful, and simply say to God, God, this is true, but I know that you died for me to set me free from this, to forgive me, and I want to follow you. That's as simple as that. And so again, I implore you, if you've never considered that, please consider that before you leave here today. And if you have put your faith in Christ, then soak that in and, and remember what you've been taken from, what you've been rescued from, and to praise uh, the God of glory for that. Thank you.